and you read verse 13 to verse 17 of chapter 4. The book of James, as we continue to study this letter, we come to verse 13 all the way to the end of chapter 4. And if you are there, I commence reading James chapter 4, verse 13. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. So, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Amen. Let's seek light from above once again. Let's pray. Our Father, we bow before you this afternoon because you are God. We come, O oh Lord, conscious that we are approaching or we are in the midst in the midst of the Holy God. We come conscious of our own frailties, our own shortcomings, our own sinful tendencies. We come, O oh Lord, confident of your word, and your word says you give wisdom to the simple. Lord, we are simple. Give us wisdom. We come before you, O oh God, knowing that we, outside of you there is death, in you there is life. Give us life, O oh Lord. Feed us with your word. And may the Holy Spirit engrave this truth in our hearts. And now we come asking that you'll help us to unlock your word. And that as we open up your word, Bless the hearers, the preacher, and bless everyone gathered this afternoon. Oh God, we ask that this privilege we have to hear you speak to us, cause that will be obedient and attentive hearers, hearers that will apply the truth they hear as they grow in Christ's likeness and as they grow in their service of you. What a joy is ours that we can be found in your house both morning and afternoon. Help us now as we sit in silence of heart to hear your word, that you'll be pleased to honor your word. For the sake of Christ, we pray. Amen. We are back in this study of the, the letter of James. And we've been going through this letter 
under the, the theme that true faith shows itself in practical godly living. And this has been James' aim to help us see that Christianity is life. And because it is life, it will show itself in practical godly living. And that's what faith does. That when we are in need, in trials, when we are sick or in our relationship with one another, true faith shows itself in practical godly living. And the last time we were together in this book, we were looking at chapter 4. And in this chapter, the first 10 verses, uh, James was, in fact, the first 12 verses, James was seeking to highlight that true faith practices humility in relationships. And this is what he was dealing with here. He, he highlighted the truth that quarrels and fightings among believers is because of the fact that we are all <coughs> seeking our good and not the good of others. We all are seeking what we feel must be done to us and not what we should do to the others. And James' conclusion was that these inward fights was because of misguided passions which, war, which wage war inside of us. And that's what he had said, quarrels and fights. is because of the passions within you that wage war against you. And James was, wants to underscore that as Christians, as we practice godly living, we will seek to relate with one another in humility, we will consider others before ourselves, and we will seek to live at peace one with the other. We must not aim to promote our selfishness and therefore begin to have quarrels and fights and divisions. And James concludes by showing us that when we behave like this, we are not at all behaving like Christians, but simply as worldly individuals. That's what is common among the people of the world. That should not be what characterizes Christians. There must be humility. There must be practical, godly living. And in our passage this afternoon, James takes a step further and shows what happens to our thinking when we live with misguided and twisted affections. And the next step that he seeks to highlight is the fact that when we have these misguided affections, we begin to long for things rather than the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And because we begin to long for things rather than the Lord Jesus Christ, we begin to attribute sovereignty to ourselves in order to cover up from our, our sins. And what James seeks to show in this passage is that true faith submits to God's sovereignty with regards to the future. But James is saying this stems from the fact that we have these twisted affections. And because we have these twisted affections, everything is centering around us. And because everything centers on us, we want now to, to begin to apply sovereignty to ourselves in as far as our plans and our relationships and our dealings are, are concerned. Rather, We want to call the shots. We want to be in charge. We want to be the ones that are actually... guarding our thoughts and in many ways been saying we would rather guide and, and guard our own tomorrows. And so what James is saying is that when we are practicing godly living it brings a healthy view of God, a healthy view of ourselves, and when we plan and think of tomorrow, we want to submit to the God who's in control of all things and leave matters in his control. And the first thing that James underscores or the first thing that he wants to show us he begins by rebuking misplaced sovereignty he begins by rebuking what I'm calling misplaced sovereignty listen to verse 13 and 14 come now you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there, and trade, and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time, and then vanishes. He, he's trying to correct, or rather he's correcting this misplaced sovereignty. And as he's writing, he was probably writing to business men and women. And probably these businessmen and women were Christians. Since verse 17 seems to suggest that the audience knew that their practice was wrong. And so he's writing to individuals who know that they are not in control of their affairs. But God is in control. And he wants them to see that even as you plan and want to do trade, this misplaced sovereignty that they attributed to themselves must be corrected. And he says, 
Come now you who say, this or that is what we would do. And the words there, come now, is a pointed call for attention that indicates the seriousness of what is to follow. And so James is like saying, wait a minute. Pause before you speak. Come now. You who said today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and then spend a year and do trade or spend some time and do trade. And the words come now in the original, in the present tense, indicating to us that this was not a one-off thinking, wrong thinking in, this, in these individuals. It indicates that this was a pattern of their thinking. It was something that was repeated over and over. It was a situation that was not isolated or an isolated instance, but this was what was generally their thinking. And now James is trying to correct this thinking. And as he's trying to correct this thinking, he wants them to have biblical mindset with regards to the future. And he addresses those who are in business. That as you make your plans, don't think for a moment that you are in control of everything. Or even in control of the affairs of your business. Now when you read uh, uh, history of the, the, the first century Christians, even in the New Testament, you, you discover that business travel was common among Jews. They would travel widely for business. Whenever there was an opportunity for trade, they would travel. And when you read in the books of Acts, in Acts chapter 18, verse 1 and 2, you read of Aquila and Priscilla who would travel for business. They were tent makers, and wherever there was opportunity, they would travel. In Acts chapter 16 uh, and verse 14, you actually read of Lydia, who had travel for trade. Now, for most of them, traveling for the purpose of business was a common thing. And so, when James is addressing them, James is not rebuking the, 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 their future plans or their desire to do trade or their desire to, to go into a town and, and stay there and make money. He's not rebuking them or correcting them for these good plans that they had. But rather, what is rebuking them is that it had become a common place among them that somehow in their plans they, they would behave as if God has bequeathed to them some sovereignty of some sort, that everything was under their control. And as they 
put the pieces together, they were behaving like they could see the future and what tomorrow holds. And James wants them to be corrected. He wants them to realize that while it is good to plan for the future, while it's good to have goals, all these goals must be brought in subjection to the sovereignty of God. So that if the plans did not go their way, they will still trust God's sovereign, sovereignty, God's rule, and they will not whine on having lost opportunity to make money. And this was a problem that he was dealing with, this misplaced sovereignty where they, they were trusting themselves rather than God. It's individuals that probably in the past have had some financial success or some, some, some trade as far as business is concerned. And now as they plan for the future, they base their, their plans on what they've achieved in the past and begin to depend on themselves rather than on God. They begin to look at themselves and don't spend time to seek the Lord's will, to ask whether this is what God wants them to do. And therefore become arrogant in their plans. It was about them, the trade, and all that they wanted to do. And James is saying this misplaced sovereignty that you think you have, you don't even know what tomorrow holds. So when you say today or tomorrow, this is what you're, I'm going to do, James is saying you are doing, you are planning as if God owes you tomorrow. You've constructed the plan in your mind. And you say, this is the place I'm going to go to. And this is how long I would stay there. And I'll make profit and then come back. And James is saying, wait a minute. You don't even know what tomorrow brings. And as you plan, don't be arrogant as if there is no God. Have you subjected your plans to God's will? Is this His will for you at this particular moment? Or it's simply about profit and you forget that tomorrow may not even come. And he says, don't claim ownership over the events that transpire in your life. You are on God's time. And this language 
that James is correcting. It's a language of self-assurance, self-confidence, a language that says, all is under my control. It's just, a, it's just a matter of me twisting my fingers and all will fall in place just as I have planned. And James says this speech is presumptuous. It's arrogant. And it's arrogant in several ways because this speech presumes that you will live long to do as you please. That's what James is saying. You are assuming that you live long enough to do as you please. It assumes that you can make whatever plans you want to make and see them come to fruition. And so even as you say today or tomorrow, you are saying the choice is mine, it's ours. I can go today, I can go tomorrow. I just need to make up my mind. And James says, this language presumes that you have the capacity to execute whatever you plan or whatever you perceive. You go into this town and make a prophet. And James is saying misplaced sovereignty forgets human ignorance. We do not know all things. We do not know what tomorrow holds. We do not even know whether we'll make a profit or not. And added to that is that it ignores the frailty of human life. While you plan, you may not have the energy or the capacity, or the time to execute your plans. Because you don't even know what tomorrow brings. Someone wrote, and I quote, when he was talking about the frailty of human life and the uncertainty of life, this is what they wrote. Things have not always turned out the way I planned. When I was young, I was poor. When old, I became rich. But in each condition, I found a disappointment. When at the faculties of enjoyment, I had, no, I had not the means when the means came, the faculties were gone. End of quote. The frailty of life. The man is basically saying, look, 
When I was young, I was very poor. Became worked hard, became rich. But even at that point, I still I was still disappointed. Because when I had the faculties to enjoy what I wanted, I did not have the means. Now that I have the means to enjoy what I want, I don't have the faculties. They are gone. Isn't this the frailties of life? You, you labor so hard. And when you feel, now I can have some time to get what I've wanted. And then you discover the Lord just gives you ill health. And you can't enjoy as you had planned. I remember someone once saying that the Lord has a way of balancing life. You find that you, you've got a garden boy who seems to have no problem consuming anything. No health issues. You, you go to the table, you're worrying about what to eat, you're choosing. Your garden boy can consume anything. No worries. They don't have the means. You have the means. And you have to select. The uncertainties of life. The, thr- the frailty of life. And this is, the, this is what James was trying to correct. That this kind of thinking must be subjected to the scriptures and see everything in light of what God is saying. Don't presume that all will go as you plan. Yes, plan and bring your plans before God. Because life is but a vapor. You are here today and tomorrow you are gone. Don't think you are a master of your destiny. Your life is passing. And the goal must be this. Since we are not sovereign, we must not have misplaced sovereignty thinking that everything is in our care. Our aim must be to do that which pleases God. That must be our driving force. That must be our principle in life to bring our lives in subjection of God's word and God's own and God's glory. That even when I'm planning my life to do business or do school or whatever it is, I'm conscious that if the Lord is not pleased, if this is not the Lord's will, it will not come to pass. And I will trust and find comfort in the God who controls all things. Don't allow your plans for tomorrow to 
overtake you. That you begin to focus on your abilities to accumulate this and accumulate that and forget God who gives you the enabling to do and to have what that which allows you to have in life. Don't be so consumed with your abilities to get this and get that and get that at the expense of your work with God. And this is what James was rebuking. This misplaced sovereignty as I'm calling it. And all of us in, the, in our heart's fabric we have the desire to be fully in charge of life around us. We want to have a sense that we have, we have, a, we have control. We want to make sure that everything is going according to our plans. But James is saying, don't be so consumed with that ability that you begin to lose focus. You begin to lose trust. You begin to lose your love and your relationship with your God. That is what matters the most. Because he is the one who knows what tomorrow may bring. The second thing that James draws our attention to is, is what I'm calling a call to recognize proper sovereignty. To recognize proper sovereignty. To recognize who is truly in control of all things. And this is what he says in verse 15. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. If the Lord wills. And James is giving us the God-honoring view of sovereignty. It moves from you. It removes from your abilities. It removes from your capacity. It removes, it moves away from your talent and focuses on he who is truly sovereign. Our God. There must be a conscious acceptance of God's sovereign will in all things. And James is saying our attitude must be if the Lord wills. And this expresses the attitude of giving recognition to God as the one who has absolute control of the affairs of your life, the affairs of the world, and everything is under his control. And here James is not simply talking about simply adding that phrase, the Lord wills your plans. He's bringing firstly undeniable fact that we are not in control. God is in control. 
And as he does so, he's basically saying what this means is that when I have done my planning, when I have done everything within my capacity, my God-given capacity or abilities, I will now turn to him and cry out to him and plead with him that if this is his will, let him bring success to my plans. It's subjecting each plan and each goal to his standard, not my standard, his standard, so that he is honored and he is glorified. So it's not just saying if the Lord wills. It's a conviction. And this conviction must work out in a corresponding lifestyle from those who believe this. And this is what James is saying. When we say the Lord wills, it must be a conviction. And this conviction must work itself in our lives. And our lifestyles must show that we are recognizing God who is sovereign. We are acknowledging that when we've made our plans and say the Lord wills, it's not just a, it's not just a mere phrase to sound no, biblically knowledgeable. We mean it. If the Lord wills, and if it doesn't go according to my plan, we return to God who did not see it fit to bless our plans at that particular time. And so it's not just saying. It must be a conviction, an acknowledgement, and our own lifestyles, our own lives must show that it is a conviction as we see it in the Scriptures. Spurgeon says that God's sovereignty is a pillow that on which believers must lay their heads at night. Because as you trust God being sovereign, you are not worried about what tomorrow holds. You do your part as God gives you breath and then you surrender everything to him to bless the labors of your efforts. And what this means is that when we say if the Lord wills, we are, we are acknowledging his sovereignty. And as we acknowledge his sovereignty, we will work hard with his given talents and plead with him to bless those talents. And as we plead, and we plead with him to bless those talents, we will be open and honest enough when we know that what we want to do is not in line with God's glory. 
We will be open enough with ourselves when we know that this has nothing to do with God's honor. It's all about my selfish ambitions and goals. Because when I bring everything to the Lord and I ask Him to subject my plans to His will, to His standard, to the Scriptures, and if I see that this is about me, it has nothing to do with His honor. It has nothing to do with the good of my brothers and sisters. I'll be open and honest to lay it aside. Because it does not have God's honor, God's glory in mind. We must plan. We must have goals. A failure to to plan our lives is sinful slothfulness. But as we plan our lives, we will hope and trust that God will be at the center of these plans and our aspirations and purposes will be that His honor and glory is met and that the blessings fall on our brothers and sisters as we march together. And when we recognize proper sovereignty, we become convinced that this is what God wants us to do. And as we become convinced of what God wants us to do, we live our lives in line with our conviction. We will not live our lives the way we want to live our lives. We will not do as we please. We will do as it pleases God. And in turn trust that the Lord will bless our efforts for our good. And in the third place, James shows us the results of misplaced sovereignty. When you think you are in control of everything, when you are at the center of everything, the results are what he highlights in verse 16, and in part of and verse 17. So as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. James is showing us the results of thinking we are the ones in control. It's pride is what surfaces. Arrogance, as James says, is what we boast about our achievements. We show off our achievements because we think this is because of my abilities. I achieved this. 
I did this. And therefore, I have no place for God in my life. It's about me. Let everyone see that it's me. And James is saying, this is wrong. He was addressing a people that, yes, they, they had achieved something. But their achievements were causing them to become proud and to boast. And James writes and says, you boast in your arrogance. And the word, that word boast, in the original it's only used twice in the New Testament. There are other forms of this word in the New Testament. But this particular one that James is highlighting, it's only used twice in, in James and also in First John chapter 2 verse 16. In First John chapter 2 verse 16, John is, there John is talking about the pride of life. You know, the last of the eyes, the last of the flesh, and then the pride of life. It's the same root word, it's the same word that is used here when James talks about you boast in your arrogance. Now what both James and John are trying to, to highlight and to communicate to us is that this boasting that is being displayed here, it's, it's, it's a boasting that goes beyond the, the reality. It's, it's a boasting that goes beyond what is really justifiable. What James is writing here is that, yes, there's a sense in which when you've, the Lord has blessed you and you achieved something, there's an allowance of boast. There's an allowance of you saying to yourself, this is what I've done. The Lord enabled me to study. But now what James is saying and what John also says when he talks about the pride of life, he's saying this is the boasting that, is go, that just goes beyond reality, beyond justifiable. You know, just boasting about what you have, but it's a boast that goes beyond that which people are able to accept. You just want to be the center of everything. When people talk about this and that, you want to be at the center of everything. It is this boasting that does not rejoice when others do better. Because you want to be at the center of everything. It's about I, me and myself. You want when people talk about those who know business, they are referring to you. And James is saying, this Tao boasting in word or deed has this pretentious display that just goes beyond that which really justifies. 
they were, these individuals were confident in their knowledge or in their cleverness and therefore began to attribute everything to themselves. And the only equivalent of this boasting is what John says in 1 John 2. This is what is true of the people of the world. Because they have no fear of God. They have no regard for God. And they can boast and live their lives as if there is no God. And James saying this should not be true of those who are believers. In the church of Christ, we must not look at our abilities, our talents and giftings, especially with regards to the future, as if our abilities are omnicapable, you know from omnipresent, huh? omnicapable, as if we are capable of doing anything. We are not omnicapable. We are dependent on God. And James showing that these individuals began to boast in their arrogance, showing off. And he calls it sin. And if this is what is true of us, it is sin. And we must repent. The results of misplaced sovereignty when we think we're in control is we slowly begin to kick God out of the picture. And there's more of us and less of God. And this is true. In most cases, for most of us, when we're in need of a job, we're more committed to the means of God, even to the prayer meetings. When we get the job, we have every excuse why we cannot be at church, cell group meeting. And when we are asked, we are ever, no, I'm busy. No, I'm working. Do you think you'll be more happy if God got your job so that you become more committed to him? Because when you begin to use your job or your school or your children as an excuse not to be at the means of grace, not to save God, in reality, what you're saying is, God, if you just get rid of these things in my life, these blessings, I'll be more happier, I'll be more committed to you. So let's not use the blessings of God as a means to fail to serve God. 
Let's say with James, as he concludes in verse 17, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. When we recognize and that we are not in control of all things, God is in control of everything, and we fail to live in line with that conviction, it is sin for us. That's what James is saying. Because you know the truth. You know how you ought to conduct yourself. You know how you ought to live your life. But somehow you still live as if you are in control of your things. And James is saying to you who knows the truth, who knows what must be done and fail to live like that, to you it is sin. That's the context in which he uses that verse. And we must apply this to ourselves. When I say, if the Lord wills, do I live like that? Do I subject myself to his sovereign will and trust that what I've committed unto him against that day, he will bring to pass. And I live my life with that reality in mind. And if this is true of all of us, we must make the desire to please God our life's principal driving force. Because we recognize that life is uncertain. God is sovereign. And the right thing for us to do is to make the desire to please Him a driving principle in our lives. That everything we do will submit to Him will bring all things to him and will trust him to honor our efforts, honor our labors for his glory. And as we do so, we will seek to please him and that will be our driving force so that whether we plan to do business tomorrow, today, it's because we trust a sovereign God to bless our efforts. And when he does that, we return thanks to him for having blessed our efforts. Oh, that God may search us this evening and know our thoughts and help us to come to a point where we truly submit to his sovereignty with regards to what the future holds. And as he gives us breath today, we will seek to honor and save him today. Amen.